Was the Apostle Paul's conversion simply a matter of epilepsy? What would have happened if Judas had not betrayed Jesus? And why do Christians not require circumcision? Join us for a special question and answer edition of the Bellator Christie podcast as we seek to provide answers to our listeners' questions. Join us now as we enter into the arena of ideas. Listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your host, Brian Chilton, as we enter the arena of ideas. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast, where we take Christian truth into the arena of ideas, while we take up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of classic apologetics. This is your host, Brian Chilton. Uh, We are going to probably wait and have our commercials towards the end of the podcast. It is a chaotic morning here, Friday, December 8th. Uh, It is snowing uh, here in the Carolinas, uh, in the the Carolinas, and um, uh, schools are are being dismissed early. There's a lot of stuff going on, so I'm going to jump into this podcast just as quickly as I can today uh, and try to cover as much ground as I can. This is a special podcast. Q&A edition of the Bellator Christie podcast. Um, we, we have, just to let you know as we get started, uh, a link on the website where you can submit questions to be answered uh, here on the podcast. And so it's simple and easy. All you need to do is go to bellatorchristie.com. That's B-E-L-L-A-T-O-R, Christ with an I, dot com, all one word, and uh, go to the upper right-hand side of the home page, and there you'll see a link saying, Submit a Question to Bellator Christie. And so by doing so, you can fill out a form, uh, and you, you send in your question. I'll get the question, and as I'm able, I'll try to group together as many questions as, uh, as, uh, as I can. I'll normally wait until we have enough questions to cover for a podcast, and uh, go from there. We have a lot of great questions to cover today, and so before I jump into the uh, before I jump into the questions themselves, I want to just say a word or two, uh, very briefly, uh, kind of kind of going alongside our our fireside chat that we had last week. Uh, I was talking about the need for Christians to guard themselves in ministry, especially those in ministry, those who are apologists, uh, theologians, uh, teachers, preachers. If you are, if you have a role in uh, in Christianity in a leadership capacity, teaching, preaching, or otherwise, you need to make sure you guard yourself. This past week, uh, the apologetic world was rocked and shaken as allegations, false allegations were made against Ravi Zacharias for having an inappropriate conversation by way of the cell phone, text messaging. Zacharias came out, RZIM released a statement. This was covered in Christianity Today. I'll let you, I'll uh, d- d- divert you to, uh, uh, to them uh, to, to, to read the article. I don't, don't have time to read it today. But I, I was very satisfied with Ravi Zacharias' Uh, Ravi Zacharias's response, he said that there was a woman in Canada who wanted him to um, talk with her husband, and he he didn't have much conversation from according to what I, the way I read that, but she kept texting him and ke- and she, he had agreed to meet the husband, but she had kept texting him and sent inappropriate pictures and texts and things of that nature. My understanding is according to the report I read, this couple had been uh, had been had made false accusations before in Canada which was proven to be fallacious. Um, 
Zacharias came out and said that he that he he has guarded himself for thirty plus years, being in the ministry, public ministry, is an itinerant evangelist. He's protected himself physically. He's protected himself uh, in, in where he goes and things of that nature with you know with whom he meets. But he said he never thought about guarding himself in the digital age. Uh, through through phone messaging and things of that nature, uh, I think that Ravi I think Ravi Zacharias is a man of integrity. I think he's done a great job, um, and so I think this serves as a warning for all of us in Christian ministry. Whether you're a Christian teacher, a professor, uh, you're a, a, a pastor, a Bible study teacher, a Sunday school teacher, a deacon, whatever, elder, whatever the case may be. You need to make sure you guard your testimony. You know, I've been, that's what I mentioned last week. Um, that was some great advice that I was given early on in ministry. Also, it was uh, he mentioned something about it was mentioned as a false. There was an accusation that uh, Ravi Zacharias was uh, was claiming to have earned a doctorate degree when he had ten honorary doctorate degrees, and uh, and so he came out. He doesn't like to be called doctor, uh, but because of this. Some colleges and places will hand out doctorate degrees. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I have my own thoughts about this. I've never found it favorable that colleges and universities hand out doctorate degrees uh, to individuals. I know why they do that. I understand the reason behind it. But there are many people who, who are called doctor that did not earn it. And I'm telling you, I'm in my first semester of my doctorate degree, um, in my doctoral degree program, and, and it's going to take me at least five years to complete this program, if if I'm able to get through it, which I hope and pray to the Lord. Uh, it, you know, he, God's got me through the in, in, entry phase, uh, and I really, I really have confidence. And let's let something physically goes wrong with me, or something goes wrong with something one of my family, where I have to quit because of life circumstances. Uh, outside of that, I see myself. By God's grace, if I can make it through the stages, I, I can see myself making it through because God got me in, and I know that He can carry me all the way through, save any life experiences. I think if 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 I ever were to have to quit the program, it would probably have to be because of life experiences or something like that. But having said that, I don't foresee that, and I hope and pray nothing like that happens. My plan is to stick it with it all the way through, to get a Ph.D., at, at the end of this program, come out with a doctorate degree. Hopefully, one day be able to teach. In addition to pastoring, that would be my lifelong goal. That would be my life. Um, that's my dream. That would be my dream job to be able to teach at a at a college or university uh, the, these wondrous truths that we discuss every week or here on this podcast. That would be my dream job. But having said that, it's going to take at least five years to get through the program. A doctor of ministry normally takes at least two or three years to get through a program. It's not easy to get a doctorate degree. And so I, I've never found, I've never liked the thought that universities and colleges hand out doctorate degrees. Again, I know the reason why they do it, and I, I'm not being critical, but I've never liked that. Okay, just just... So that you know my opinion on that, that's ne- I've never been very favorable of that practice. But again, I know why they do it. I don't criticize. I don't condemn. But I think this is the reason why uh, I, I, I'm not in favor of that. Because sometimes people will be called will call themselves doctor, or it will be assumed that they are a doctor when they didn't earn the degree. They were granted an honorary degree. That's my two cents. But nonetheless, Ravi Zacharias, to my knowledge, never never publicly proclaimed himself to have an earned degree. Certain, it was, certain people assume that. And so all of this is coming from, and uh, the, these accusations were publicized by an atheist blogger. Uh, and so obviously if you're in Christian ministry, if you're a pol- an apologist, a theologian, listen. By very the very nature of what we do, you can you can expect that people are going to try to bring you down. Okay, I think what we see through this situation as well that we need to be transparent. I think Zacharias was transparent from what I gather, from what I know of the situation. I think RZIM has been has been very transparent. They RZIM has I think they said ten earned doctors on their staff. Okay, so they are they are very highly qualified. To do what they do, 
Ravi Zacharias has a master's degree, which it used to be in many places that you could still teach in a, in a college and university even with a master's degree. Uh, I know a lot, there's a big push now for the Ph.D. Uh, to have access to teach, but, but that's neither here nor there. Just be transparent. That's what I'm trying to say. We need to, we need to have integrity. We need to, because of what we do, if we don't have integrity on the small things, people aren't going to take us seriously when we talk about the larger things, and so we've got to take care. You're going to hear some buzzers going off. That's because we have snow coming down outside, and here in the south, when that happens, everything goes chaotic, and everybody goes buying their bread and milk. So just just know that you're going to hear some, some dings and, and some funny sounds as we go through the podcast. Let me go ahead and jump into these questions and answers because of the chaos that we have this morning. Let me go ahead and jump into that today. We have several really good questions that I'd like to try to cover uh, during our time together. I'm going to try to be as as brief and concise. Now, I have not had a lot of success in that regard. I think the fireside chat last week I said would be concise, and it turned out to be about a 40, 45-minute show. I guess that that's the preacher coming out in me. So I've got some notes here. I have some notes here. I'm going to try to be as brief and concise uh, with this as I can. Now, we have... Uh, by the way, let me just say something, too. Be sure to go to bellatorchristie.com, subscribe, and by doing so, you'll, uh, you'll catch all the articles and podcasts as they become available. Uh, also, I would ask, if you do ask a question, I, I understand people want to remain anonymous on some of these questions, and, and I am that that is fine. That's not a problem. But if you would just put a first name to this, uh, you don't have to put your last name, but if you could put a first name, I mean, you don't have to. Uh, we'll still answer the questions, but if you could put a name to this, like a first name um, or something like that, uh, then that, that would go a long way to help me answer these questions. Uh, that way we can identify who it is. Okay, the first question uh, that we have today, that we're going to cover today, comes from Seeking Answers 123ABC3. Uh, I think that's maybe, I don't, I don't know if that's a made-up name or what, but anyhow, um, bear with me. Like I said, there's going to be several things going off here. Okay, um, so just bear with us. This may be kind of a choppy program. I may have to pause the recording as we go through. Like I said, it's, it's chaotic. We've got, we have some snow in the south, and it is chaotic. And there we go again. All right, hold on a second. <laughs> okay, well, let's try this again. Okay. <laughs> okay, so maybe we can get through the questions now. All right, the uh, first question comes to us from Seeking Answers 123 ABC. They, the, the, there's actually several questions they ask, but we'll cover this uh, one at a time. Uh, first, the question is why, don't, why do Christians not observe circumcision? Okay, um, it, Christianity emerged from Judaism. Okay, Christianity is fulfilled Judaism, one can say. And so, when the, when the church first started, it was thoroughly Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. The um, the early disciples were Jewish. The earliest disciples were uh, so so. This was a Jewish coming from the Old Testament, coming from the Hebrew Bible, um, and and so it was thoroughly Jewish at heart. So the earliest Christians would have been circumcised. And um, hold on. Okay, here we go again. We're, we're, we're trying. We're trying this morning. Okay, we're trying. Okay, going back to the thought. The uh, earliest Christians, Jesus, the earliest Christians were all Jewish, and so they were circumcised. There was a big question mark as the church grew. The church grew. There were many non-Jewish individuals who came part of the church, and there was a big question about whether they were to be circumcised or not. And so uh, Paul the Apostle was making the argument as after he, after he became a Christian and started his missionary journeys, he started making the argument that, that the new covenant is a circumcision of the heart. It's a circumcision of the heart. And so thereby, since the person is, has the grace of Christ, then this old law 
which we're going to talk as we move through these questions about the difference between the different laws of the Old Testament, why this law was not necessary. It wasn't necessary to force male individuals to be circumcised to join the church. While circumcision, so again, the New Covenant celebrates the circumcision of the heart, and you can find the New Covenant information found in Jeremiah Hopefully, maybe at a later podcast we can go into this. We have several questions, and we don't have a lot of time, as you can tell already. The 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 phones and everything are going off the hook because of the snow we're getting down here, and so obviously it gets a little chaotic uh, when you're in the south in the winter time and when snow hits. So anyhow, uh, there was this new understanding of of the circumcision of the heart. Uh, while circumcision is still a viable option for Christians, in fact, I dare say most Western Christians do circumcise their male children, it's no longer a requirement, okay, it, because of the grace of God found in the new covenant in, in and through Jesus Christ. So th- that's the reason they don't do that. The, the, the circumcision of the heart, as Jeremiah discusses, is, is what really matters. And and there there are arguments that people can make that a person can have the physical circumcision but not have the circumcision of the heart, and that person would still be lost because it's it's by grace through faith that we're saved, not of ourselves, it's a gift of God. So that's the reason, and if you go forward to the time of the Jerusalem Council, and you can read about that in Acts chapter 15, uh, there was, uh, they welcomed the... um, Welcome the Gentile believers, and and uh, so Paul and Barnabas and um, and and many others were there uh, who who were welcoming these new Christians uh, who who had not been circumcised. So that is the point that that circumcision wasn't a requirement for Christians. Now, if you wanted to be circumcised, you could obviously could if you wanted that, but it wasn't a requirement. Okay, so there wasn't that. The second question is, why don't Christians observe the Sabbath? Now, for many of you, you may not know that the Sabbath day actually begins on Friday afternoon and extends to Saturday afternoon. Now, the question is, why do Christians not observe the Sabbath? Why do we not worship on Saturday? Well, the Sabbath day was moved to Sunday in honor of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus was raised to life was raised from the dead on early Sunday morning. So the primary focus on keeping the Sabbath has never really been so much about a particular day, although that became part of the tradition. The whole the whole thing about the Sabbath was that a person observe one day a week with which to honor God, in which that person would honor God. So for the Christian, Sunday became the holiest day of the week because, again, of Jesus' resurrection. Now, the reason the Sabbath day was was deemed the Sabbath day is because of the seven-day calendar, Sunday being the first day, Saturday being the last day. Of course, now, in the, the terms we have for, for the days of the week actually, by and large, come from Greek mythology, uh, Greek and Roman mythology, so so uh, uh, even Norse mythology, like Thursday is actually Thor's day, and uh, Friday comes from Fridis, and then uh, and then there's there's uh, uh, the the other days. Monday is the moon day. Sunday is the day in observance of the sun, you know, and so Saturday Saturday is in observance of Saturn, uh, you know, a Roman god. So anyhow. The names, the days of the week were called something different, but but the seven day parameters found in the book of Genesis uh, were, were the creation days that you see there. But the interesting thing is, seven is the number of perfection and completion, but eight is also a very important number in Christianity. Eight is the number for a new beginning. So Sunday, being the day of the resurrection, one could say on that eighth day, entering the new covenant entering a new phase, a new kingdom that has come, God's kingdom coming to earth, a new covenant that has been found in Him. All of this happened on a Sunday, which could, could many people would say, who study gematria and things of this nature, would say that it is celebrating the eternal eight 
the eternal eight, uh, the, the number of eternity, the, the number of a new beginning, the number of resurrection, the number of hope that we have in Christ's resurrection. So the reason Christians move the day, the Sabbath day from Saturday to Sunday, which was, let me just say, revolutionary, that they, it was revolutionary that they did that. The only answer for that is that Jesus raised from the dead on a Sunday. And so uh, that's actually, I think, good historical evidence to suggest that Jesus did rise from the dead on, on that first or Easter Sunday. So that's the reason why Sabbath was moved from Saturday to Sunday. Now, the third question is, when did the New Testament times, i.e., when Old Testament commands were no longer required to be followed, but New Testament, New Testament commands were to be followed instead began. Was it the moment that Jesus died for our sins? Well, now let me just say that, that um, it, it, when you say Old Testament commands, it really just depends on what you mean by that. Okay, now I, I'm, I'm going to think, I'm going to assume by the questions that have been asked by our, our brother um, seeking answers, I'm going, to, I'm going to assume that the person is speaking of circumcision, Sabbath day, talking about the law. I think this is the same person that was asking about uh, the Ebionites a, a, and um, the Nazarenes a few weeks back. Uh, so so le- we have to dissect the Old Testament commands. And, and decipher what commands you're re- referencing. There are actually three kinds of Old Testament laws. And it's important that we understand this as we study the Scripture because the Old Testament is still applicable. We still read the Old Testament. We still, we still believe as Christians that the Old Testament is inspired Scripture just as much as the New Testament. The Old Testament and the New Testament go together. The difference, as we understand progressive revelation, though, is that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So what are these three kind of laws? Well, one, you have the moral laws. And these moral laws are eternal. For instance, moral laws are universal in scope. Can, you know, and This would uh, apply to the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus said that's the greatest commandment. That's the greatest commandment of all, to love the Lord your God. That comes from Deuteronomy six, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Jesus said that, that there's another Old Testament law that is the second greatest commandment of all, and that comes from Leviticus 14, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commandments hinge all the rest of the commandments. If you keep those two commandments, then you'll keep the rest of the law, Jesus says. And so these moral laws, Ten Commandments would be moral laws. These these laws are universal in scope and are still applicable. It's still wrong to murder. It's still wrong to commit adultery. It's still wrong to take the name of the Lord of God the, the name of the Lord our God in vain. These things are still now talking about the Sabbath day keep it holy that that's not referencing so much the one day a week as much as it is to make a Sabbath day. Jesus being risen on Sunday, that would make that the new Christian observed holy day, that being the new Sabbath day. Okay, So some laws in the Old Testament were moral laws. Other laws, number two, were civil laws. These laws applied directly to the nation of Israel. Okay, this would involve the restrictions on what one could or could not do with a neighbor's cow or something like that. And if, if a person harmed a neighbor's bull or cow, they were to recompense that neighbor so much for that. Um, you know, th- there are other things like you could not have a worker, uh, an indentured servant for more than seven years. And there's a whole lot we could talk about that. These were these were nationalistic laws applying to ancient Israel. Okay, the third type of laws is what is known as the ceremonial law. The, these laws describe the process by which a person was made ritually pure and clean before a holy God. Now these were temporary. Okay, this these these laws were temporary until the coming of the Messiah. When Messiah came, 
and, and, and fulfilled the law and fulfilled a prophecy and created a new covenant, then these laws are the ones that have been abrogated. These laws are the ones that have been changed. These laws concern kosher foods. These laws con, uh, concern um, um, circumcision and things of this nature. These things were to make one ritually pure before a holy God. The laws... Uh, but we see that these laws were, were abrogated uh, because of the new covenant, the new dispensation of grace that God had provided through Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah. So the, the laws described by God to Peter were ceremonial whenever God said, now you can eat these foods that were, were, were once non-kosher, but now they're kosher, they're acceptable. So, so these uh, were, were overruled because of the once-for-all sacrifice made by Christ. But, now let me just say this. Does, some people will say, well, does this mean we just toss out these ceremonial and civic laws? Absolutely not. Because I think behind every precept, you find an eternal principle. Okay, Even behind these ceremonial and civic laws, there is an eternal moral principle found. Now, there are certain moral precepts, like you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. But there are moral principles found in these civil and ceremonial laws. And so that's where the role of good exegesis comes in in interpreting, rightly handling the word of truth. Uh, here again, only the ceremonial laws were affected through this. Civil laws applied more to the government. The moral laws apply to everyone. So that's where, you know, a lot of times people think, well, you can just pick up the Bible and read it and you understand it. Some parts you can, but there's other parts that you have to really use good uh, reason interpretation and that comes ultimately, I think, by community, God working through the community, the Holy Spirit working through the community, and helping us to find uh, the, the truths that He has for us. So, number four, how would you respond? This, again, coming from Seeking Answers. How would you respond to someone who claims that circumcision and the Sabbath were commanded by God for God's people on a permanent basis and were meant to be observed permanently? Is this true? How do we reconcile the New Testament teachings uh, on this, with the Old Testament teachings on this. Okay, hope you can help. God bless. Again, I would go back to the previous answer. I would I would distinguish between the three types of laws, and 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 let them and let the person know that there are some laws that we have to be reasonable about. This there are some laws that were only applicable to ancient Israel. Okay, if if you were in Israel, th these laws would probably still apply. But if you're under the new covenant of grace then a lot of these other ceremonial laws just, you know, you can still keep them if you want to. I mean, there's nothing wrong. If you want Jesus celebrated Hanukkah, there's nothing wrong with a Christian celebrating Hanukkah. There's nothing wrong with it at all. In fact, you know, I, I, Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. We see that in, in the Gospel of John. If you want to celebrate the Jewish festivals, have at it. There's nothing wrong with it. And if you want to, um, you know, you want to observe, you know, Sabbath on, on, on a Saturday, you know, there's some churches that hold worship services on Saturday. I mean, you know, more power to you. Uh, you know, I, I, but, but for me, I think now that Jesus' resurrection had happened on a Sunday, then, then, then I think that's an appropriate day of worship Sunday. So, you know, if you want to still keep these things, you know, more power to you. But we're living under a covenant of grace because we're living under a covenant of the Holy Spirit. So again, I, I would go back to the previous answer that I gave there. Actually, I would give, go back to not only the previous answer I gave of the three types of laws found in the Old Testament, but I go back to what we were talking about, and I also read Acts chapter fifteen. Uh, on the Jerusalem Council, read the book of Galatians. Have that person read the book of Galatians. Have that person read the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, and I would start there and see where the conversation goes. And of course, if if you have if you need any more help, and if I can be of service, be sure to ask some more questions, and we'll try to get those answered the best we can here on the podcast. So that's the question. That's all the questions we have from seeking answers. Let me go to another question. A great question. In fact, a friend of mine asked some questions for the podcast. I'm not going to be able to cover all the questions he asked, but I'm going to table a couple of those questions to the next podcast. I have a good buddy of mine, Kerry Parker. Uh, he writes, What would have happened if Judas had not turned in Jesus? 
In other words, what would have happened if Judas would not have turned Jesus into the authorities? Okay, well, this, this question is, I think, answerable. Now, obviously, if no one turned in Jesus, then uh, I think eventually in the plan of God, something would have happened because the tensions were hot, the tensions were high against, uh, against Jesus at the time with the religious authorities. I think something would have eventually happened, and I think Jesus would still have eventually been crucified. Uh, but I think in fulfillment to the prophecy, it was necessary that Judas turn in Jesus. Now, this asks the question, was Judas forced to turn in Jesus? And the answer is no. Here again, we look at the, the, the balance we find in Scripture pertaining to divine sovereignty and human freedom. And here again, I would say that I think that Molinism offers the best answer for this. Jesus knew the free choice that Judas would make. He knew it. That's, when it when you see this, I won't read the scriptures because we know we're really pressed for time today, but you can read the scriptures and see. Read the stories in the, in the Synoptic Gospels, also the Gospel of John. Jesus takes the bread, dips it in the same bowl with Judas, you know, bringing forth the point that Judas was given a place of honor by Jesus. Jesus, Jesus knew what Judas was going to do. So, but Judas freely did this. Now, the Molinist paradigm gives us a great response to this. How did this happen where God knew freely what Judas was going to do with certainty and Judas still have the freedom to do this? I think I, We look here at the three modes of divine knowledge that Louis de Molina poses. He says that God na has natural knowledge. This is, his, this is God's knowledge of what could happen. These are the potentials based upon the laws that he makes, based from, based from his own nature, the logic which comes within himself, not based on necessarily external things, but within himself. God knows the things that could happen. Okay, He knows the, he knows, he knows the actuals and the counterfactuals. He, know, he knows all of it. Um, and, and this goes into a, to a further development as we, as we go forth. But, but anyhow, God knows the potentials that's out there. That's his natural knowledge. God's free knowledge is his knowledge of what will happen. This is his simple foreknowledge. God knows with certainty what's going to happen. Okay? Uh, many people will say well, maybe it's by his decrees, but nonetheless, God knows what will happen. And then finally, we see God's middle knowledge. This is the knowledge that, that acts be between, that works between the natural knowledge and the free knowledge. That's why it's called the Scientia Media, or the middle knowledge. This is his knowledge, this is God's knowledge of what would happen. And I think we have scriptural, scriptural precedent to, to see this happening. God knows what free creatures would freely choose when put under certain circumstances. The fact that Jesus knew that uh, Judas would freely turn him in, I think clearly shows that Jesus had this type of middle knowledge. Uh, Molina also offers the uh, ref refers to Jesus' middle knowledge of Tyre and Sidon in response to Matthew eleven twenty one. Had Tyre and Sidon had the type of information that uh, was presented before um, uh, the people he was to whom he was speaking, they would have repented. He, they, he said, but Molina refers to Jesus' middle knowledge of Tyre and Sidon's response. Uh, he also talks about um, the uh, example of 1 Samuel 23, verses 10 through 12, where David asks God about the decision that Saul would make concerning a town named uh, Keilah if David stayed there. Now, David didn't stay there, and so Saul didn't do it. But had, I mean, excuse me, David didn't stay in, if David had stayed in the city, then Saul would have. Um, would have come into Keilah making them, you know, destroying, causing havoc. Havoc, But because David did not stay in the city, then Saul did not go into the city. Okay, God uses a form of middle knowledge in both cases. So here's what we find. Human beings are free to respond to the grace of God. Human beings are free to act. And, and this is God's knowledge of actuals and counterfactuals. Actuals or factuals are things that, that will come to be. Counterfactuals are those decisions that a person could have made but didn't. You know, if, if this other thing had happened, that would be a counterfactual. God knew that Judas would, under, under seeing the grace of God given to him, that he would reject that grace and would turn Christ in. And this shows a level of depth 
a depth of knowledge that is just almost unfathomable for, for many of us. But that shows the level of complexity of God's omniscience, of His all-knowing. So God has this middle knowledge, knowing what free creatures would do under certain circumstances. And I think that's a great basis for seeing what, uh, what, what could have happened. Would Jesus still have been crucified? I think eventually... Uh, but I think that, uh, quite honestly, God, coming, knowing from within himself what Judas would do, uh, allowed Judas to be chosen as one of the disciples. In fact, that may have even been the reason that uh, Jesus chose him to be a disciple, extending his grace to him, giving him an opportunity, but knowing that in the end that he would do what he, what he did. And so um, I think that's a good, I think that's, I think it's a reasonable answer. Uh, with the paradigm we find in Molinism. So, great question. Uh, Kerry's got some more wonderful questions that he's uh, posed to me on uh, social media. We're going to try to get that those answered here on a future podcast. All right, uh, new guy. Uh, new guy asks uh, a couple of questions here we would like to cover as we wrap this up. This is quite bizarre. Th- these questions are quite bizarre. Um, I tried to access the article, so and I wasn't. It's in a medical journal, so I wasn't able to access it. I went to Telegraph, uh, a London newspaper. Unfortunately, they have taken the link down. But um, this is what News Guy says: Dear Pastor Brian, I recently came across an article, quote unquote, Saint John converted by epileptic fit, suggests BBC. And uh, he says, I am having trouble finding response to the claims made in the article and would very much appreciate your answer. He he says, number one, the article states that a documentary about St. Paul has infuriated Christians by suggesting that the apostles' conversion on the road to Damascus may have been caused by an epileptic fit. How would you respond to such a claim? Now, he goes on to say, I want to read both these questions together and then I'll give my response. The second question is, the article also states an even more bizarre theory suggested by Dr. John Durr, an American earthquake expert, is that Paul could have been struck by a bolt of electromagnetic energy similar to ball lightning, we'll call this a fireball, released by an earthquake. The program quotes scientists saying that such an event could have triggered what Paul would believe to be a mystical experience as well as leaving him blind for several days. I also came across this article, was St. Paul struck blind and converted by lightning. Okay, and he gives the information there. He says, um, okay, Wright State University School of Medicine is where that comes from. That They claim that in the Bible, St. Paul was struck by a light from heaven. Three days later, his vision was restored by laying on of hands. The circumstances uh, surrounding his blindness represent an important episode in the history of religion. Numerous theories have been proposed to account for this event, which have been subject of interest for theologians, philosophers, artists, and the, uh, physicians. A lightning strike could explain all the features of this episode. How would you respond to this claim also? Very much appreciate your response to these claims, especially claim two. Hope you can help. God bless. And then he gives a link there on a Catholic uh, magazine, catholic.com, uh, which refers, to, which answers uh, this as well. Um, here's what I here's what I, I'd I'd like to do. This this is a very unusual claim, uh, and if if you look at Acts chapter nine, and we're and we're running low on time. Uh, looks like it's going to be about what twelve more minutes we have left, or more, maybe a little bit more. Uh, l- let me just defer you to uh, Acts chapter nine and and read the the account. Now we see that the men who it, as this is happening, he okay. Let me just read this part. As he traveled and he near it was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Now this doesn't mean this this light's flashing around him. Okay, falling to the ground, he heard a voice. Okay, now he hears a voice. Now, of these two theories, hearing a voice would make one inclined. If it was going to be either or the other, that it would uh, either or the other, it would be more the epileptic fit. But I don't think it's that either. But because I'll tell you why. And he hears this voice saying, "Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me?" And Saul asks, "Who are you, Lord?" 
And he says, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Now read verses 7 through 9. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound, but seeing no one. Okay, Paul got up from the ground. Although his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand, led him to Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. Okay, now let's also go to another testimony in... um, Chapter 22, okay, Paul goes through the account, but now here in verse 11, um, excuse me, verse 9, those who were with me saw the light, but they did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. Okay, so now let's go over to chapter 26. Now some people may say there's a discrepancy here, but there's not, and I'll explain why. Uh, Jesus says, I am Jesus. Um, uh, Let's see here. Okay, let me go back in verse 13. Uh, King Agrippa, while on the road at midday, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those traveling with me. We fell, all fell, all fell to the ground. Okay, now he adds the point that everybody fell to the ground. And I heard a voice speaking from heaven to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Get up and stand on your feet. For I've appeared to you for this purpose, and goes through that. Goes through that, and he says, "King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to heavenly vision. I preached to those in Damascus." Um, let's see here. Okay. Okay. So anyhow, we 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 see converging all of these details together. Merging all these details together, we see that Paul saw the light and saw the person in the light, which was Jesus. Paul heard a voice and understood the words that were being spoken to him. They were spoken in Aramaic. Now, the men who were with him, they fell down too when this happened. Okay, Notice the witnesses here. They fell down too. They saw the light, but they did not see the person in the light. They heard a sound, they heard something like a voice, but they did not understand what the voice was saying. Okay, now here's the problem. I have two problems with the epileptic seizure theory. Let me cover this one first, and then I'll, call, then I'll handle what I call the fire, fireball theory, which is the second one that you posed. Number one, uh, the, the first problem, the problem with the epileptic seizure theory is the same problem that proponents of the hallucination theory have to explain away the witness of Jesus's or the witnesses of Jesus's post-resurrection appearances. Hallucinations and epileptic seizures are individualized events. We have to understand that. With Saul of Tarsus's henceforth called Paul, his conversion, others saw something and heard something along with Paul. They didn't hear they didn't understand the voice. They heard a sound, they didn't understand the voice. They saw the light, but they didn't see the person in the light. Okay, that would mean that if this if this were an epileptic seizure, then everybody would have had to have an epileptic seizure and would have had to have the same type of hallucination that Paul had. <laughs> but, but you but you see that didn't happen. Just like hallucinations, epileptic seizures are individualized events. So everyone saw something, everyone heard something, but it was only Paul, the one to whom the vision. Uh, the, the, the light, uh, the appearance was directed, the one to whom the words were addressed, he was the only one who actually saw Jesus and, uh, and, and heard the words of Jesus. Everyone else saw the light coming from Jesus and heard his voice but did not understand the words that he spoke. Okay, so again, there are other witnesses of this account, not just Paul. And so that diffuses this argument. Number two, the epileptic theory does nothing to explain how Paul began preaching the gospel message of Jesus that that he had previously abhorred, that he had previously despised, hated. How was it that this epileptic seizure allowed him to preach the same gospel that was being preached to the apostles uh, by the apostles of Jesus? Furthermore, now while he may have heard the message of of the disciples here and there, 
Galatians suggests that Jesus may have even met privately with Paul for some time shortly after Paul's conversion. An epileptic seizure does nothing to answer the change in Paul's theology and the cohesiveness of his message with that of the apostles. When he went back to Jerusalem about uh, three years later and met with the apostles, it was found that he was teaching and preaching the exact same message that the apostles were, the individuals who had followed Jesus for three and a half years. So, uh, I do not think the epileptic seizure, while it's very fascinating theory, it's a very fascinating theory and very wisely crafted, I do not think that it holds any merit. And furthermore, now that's not to say that Paul may not have suffered from epileptic seizures sometime in his, in his life, but that does not, necess- that does not change or demerit any, anything having to do with this experience because there were other eyewitnesses. Okay, there were other eyewitnesses there. By the way, I've had a chance to see angels two or three times. I could have easily dismissed those occurrences if it had not been for the fact that on two of those occasions, other people saw the same thing I did. Okay, so multiple people don't have the same hallucination. Multiple people do not have the same epileptic, uh, they don't have the same hallucinations coming from an individualized epileptic seizure. Uh, it's, so it just fails. It, just like the resurrection of Jesus, the hallucination theory fails and tried to describe the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, and I think the epileptic seizure theory uh, fails to describe the uh, transformation of Paul. Now, the, fire, the problem with the fireball theory is uh, multiple, multifaceted. Is, is, I think there are seven problems that I, that I come up with with the fireball theory. This is the theory that Paul was struck by a ball of lightning that came from an earthquake, uh, that developed out of an earthquake. So like the epileptic, epileptic theory, the fireball theory, number one, does not explain the voices heard by Paul and the bystanders. This just describes one element. They saw a light. It does nothing to describe the man that Paul saw in the light. It does nothing to describe the voices that were heard by Paul and the men there with him. They heard the sound of the voice, but they didn't understand what the voice said. Okay, So that's the first problem. Number two, like the, fireball, or like the epileptic theory, um, the fireball theory does nothing to explain the vision of Jesus that Paul saw. That goes along with the first point. Number three, a fireball and lightning strike would not necessarily bring about a change in a person's theology by itself. Now, whenever I was called to preach, I was caught in a thunderstorm, and it was by the grace of God that I wasn't struck. But, you know, it wasn't just the lightning that changed my theology it was it were it was the combination of the lightning and other circumstances. So again, I think this is a naturalistic way of trying to explain away a supernatural event. Number four, the fireball theory, like the epileptic theory, does nothing to explain the shared theology that Paul held with the apostles. It just doesn't. Number five, the fireball theory is more problematic than the epileptic theory because Paul would not have regained his sight. It may not have even survived a large enough blast from a fireball. Now, this medical journal says that it is possible that that you could uh, your sight could return in three days. And apparently, you know, maybe in certain circumstances that's true. But it doesn't seem to me that if you're struck now, especially if if they're which I didn't get a chance to read the article, so I'm kind of a little handicapped on this because I, I didn't have access when I tried to click on it. It wouldn't let me read it. The problem I have, though, is if it's a direct lightning strike, there's no promise that his sight would have come back. And, you know, and, and I'm, I'm assuming that this fireball that they're, that they're proposing would be like, kind of like a, a, a big flash, you know, like, a, like a camera flash, a flash from a camera that blinds you for a few minutes and then your sight comes back. But if it's a large enough blast and if it's a direct hit by a lightning bolt or a fireball like that, there's nothing to guarantee that a person's sight would come back. That's what I'm arguing there. So while it may be possible, you know, I, I'm not so sure that, that this would be something that you could say is is evidence that that there was not nothing supernatural that took place. That this was just a naturalistic thing. I, I don't I don't think that at all. Um, number six, it is difficult to see how the bystanders would not have discredited. Paul's testimonial if they knew that Paul had merely suffered a fireball hit or a lightning strike. 
you know, if, if they saw him get struck by lightning or they saw a fireball come and he hit him, you know, I don't think they would have automatically assumed that it was Jesus. Okay? They, they were against the Christian movement. Maybe they would have thought that, hey, you know, God's trying to tell him something or maybe the devil's fighting against him. But, you know, most likely they would say, well, maybe God's trying to, get, to tell him something through this. But they would not have naturally assumed that it was Jesus. And they certainly wouldn't have naturally assumed that, uh, that he needed to change his message. I don't see that at all. I don't see that happening at all. You know, so um, while it may, it may make you have a change of mind, the level at which Paul hated these Christians, I, I think you know, it may have may have it may have changed his perception on maybe I don't need to persecute these people, but it wouldn't have necessarily changed his theology to say, hey, I'm going to join this group of people that I've been trying to kill, and I've been trying to cast out, especially knowing now by that by doing this, my life is going to be threatened even after being struck by a fireball. I don't see that. I just don't see it. And I think that the that the people traveling with Paul would have discredited his testimonial had that happened. Last, seventh, and most importantly, this is the thing you have to understand about these type of theories. There is absolutely no shred of evidence historically suggesting the fireball theory is true. There's nothing in history that suggests that this theory is true. This is a new concocted theory developed by individuals trying to uh, discredit, because of their naturalistic philosophy, they're trying to discredit a supernatural occurrence. And I tell you the reason why. Because Paul's testimonial is absolutely incredible. It's one of the five, it's one of the five minimal facts presented by Gary Habermas that all scholars will agree, to which all scholars will agree, and that is that Paul had a transformation. Paul saw something that transformed him, and the best evidence is that he saw the risen Jesus, also experienced by these other individuals, although they didn't see Jesus and they didn't hear, they didn't understand what he said. They still heard a voice, and they still saw the light coming from Jesus. The best theory still holds that the Bible is true and that Paul was transformed by seeing the risen Jesus on his way to Damascus. Folks, we had some wonderful questions today. If you'd like to submit your question, go to bellatorchristie.com. Go to the Submit a Question link and submit your question today, and we'll get your questions hopefully answered on the next edition, one of the next future of podcasts of the Bellator Christie Podcast. Again, we thank you for joining us today. This is Brian Chilton, and you've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast. We'll see you back next time as we step into the arena of ideas. views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of bellatorchristi.com or its affiliates. The Bellator Christi podcast is a production of bellatorchristi.com and is protected under Creative Commons copyright. All rights reserved. The theme song is Crucified, written by John and Kayla Lemonese, performed by Crosby Lane, and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit bellatorchristi.com and subscribe so that you can receive all the articles and podcasts in your inbox for free. Catch us on iTunes, TuneIn, and Stitcher. For Brian Chilton, this is Burl Childers saying God bless, and we'll see you the next time as we enter into the arena of ideas. about a new book that has just come out of bookstores by our pastor, Michael Catt. Michael's had a huge impact on our lives. He called us to Albany. He preaches powerful messages. He just finished a series on Philippians. I love the book of Philippians. It talks about the, the humbling of Christ, uh, this same mindset being, uh, being in us, and then also the promises that we have in Philippians 4 that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, and he's going to supply all of our needs. So as we explored Philippians with our pastor and congregation, our pastor put these principles and truths in this book, The Power of Purpose, by one of our favorite publishers ever, B&H Publishing. So you can get this book today. We encourage you to check it out. Take care.